I love Jesus. I absolutely adore him and I just step out of the way so he can have his way. I just pray that anything that I say today, it's not about me, it's about him and his work. So Lord, just take over. Um, I hope I don't bore you all witless. If I see you all sort of sitting there going, oh, I'll try and make it as succinct as possible, but there's a bit to get through. And um, when, you, when I start with my family, I've got a sister called Margaret, a brother called Michael, another brother called Malcolm, and my name's Robin. Now, in, there's, a, there's a tale to tell, and, and I'll touch on it as we go through. <clears throat> the, the third child is often the lost child, that's who I was. And I was born during the war, and in the war years, when I looked at, as I was thinking about this, I lived in Cottage Street, Blackburn, um, which was where the Cotties factory went off, just um, Blue Moon was there. And in that street alone, there were two war widows, one man so shell-shocked that when we went to play at their house, we had to talk in whispers and he lived in a dark room. Another man put his head in a gas oven and there were two alcoholics. Now that's in a street of about 12 houses. That was the world that I came into. It was absolutely grief-stricken. My dad didn't go to war, he was in essential services, but he worked very, very long hours and we didn't see very much of him. My family had just moved to Blackburn. The story of the name is that I was actually christened Marion Isabel Robin. And the Marion was my mother's name, the Isabel was my grandmother's name, and those two were at war over my father. And my dad named me Robin, and he obviously used to call me Robin because when I went to school and mum used to enrol me as Marion, I can well remember sitting in the classroom and they called out Marion when they called the roll, and I wouldn't answer. My name's Robin. So eventually the family succumbed and I actually took on the name Robin. And it was quite distinctive, and my role in the family was quite distinctive. I was the neglected child. The other children were very talented. Um, they'd been brought up in Hawthorne with my extended family, my father's side, and 
when I came along, I think Mum must have been pretty shell-shocked herself. She had a lot of grief in her background and I just got neglected. There was, and it was quite deliberate because she told the other children to do the same. But I, I learned resilience in that and I lived in the back garden largely with two beautiful Samoya dogs, the Chooks. I loved the garden. I had special places in the garden where I used to sit and I knew Jesus. I knew him so well. Lonely little kids and I was very shy and I was very sort of introverted. Oh, and I raised tadpoles. I used to raise tadpoles into frogs, hundreds of them. <laughs> and, and I remember these conversations that I had with Jesus in the garden. And I would quite deliberately walk down, it wasn't very far away, but I was still very young. I would walk down to the Anglican church um, in Blackburn from Cottage Street and I would just sit in the church as a little girl, just looking at the stained glass windows and just being in that place. There was something deeply innate about that protection that was over me. The, um, we, we were in the, in the Anglican church in the early years, but then my sister decided that the Presbyterian church had a better youth group. So we moved over to the, which is now the Uniting Church in the Avenue, um, which at that stage was a little Presbyterian church. And we all went there and that's where I grew up in that church. That was, that was really my home. And the, um, on the outside of everything, it all looked pretty normal. But we had a secret in our family we had a dark secret. My father was a medium and my mother was a clairvoyant. And I won't tell you how that all came about. I do know the story in the background. It was in the grief-stricken world of the war. Queen Victoria was right into it. It had been, it was sort of trendy. And, um, and down in Hawthorne there was a spiritualist church and they got involved in that church, the whole family, Dad's family and, and Mum involved too, in that church. And when I look back on it, I knew there was something wrong from a tiny little thing. And my mother hated me for it. She, she would, she, I didn't take her name. And the second thing she really chastised me about was, you're not like the other children, you haven't got spiritual gifts. And I can remember thinking to myself and wandering off down the garden thinking, well, I don't want them anyway. <laughs> <clears throat> so there was some sort of protection in all of that. What I've come to understand with spiritualism, and I'm not gonna go into it in any depth, but when the umbrella of protection of the parents is taken off a family of whatever generation and the, the protection for a godly household is removed, the impact on the children and the generations is huge. I cannot emphasise how important it is that you guard your families from any contact with this stuff. It's a slippery slope to a very, very ugly situation. In my generation, you did what your dad told you. Dad was an accountant. 
I was I showed um, some inclination towards being interested in um, bookkeeping and accounting, and my sister was the secretary. The boys went to university, um, so as soon as I was at working age, I was going to I was working with my dad in the the business and going to night school at Swinburne to study accounting, and that's what you did. And I was only about 15 or 16, but that was the way it was. And I worked in that family business for 25 years. My mum worked there and my sister worked there and eventually my younger brother worked there. My older brother escaped. He became a scientist. Um, so that was in 1958 I started there. I married in 1964, as you can imagine, a disastrous marriage, a very brutal marriage. I had a little girl in 1968 and then um, I have to keep an eye on this because the real turning point, and this is where I want to start getting into the journey out from this dark darkness, came with the charismatic renewal. Now in the Avenue Church, because we were then a uniting church, we'd come through Presbyterian, Methodist, Congregationalist uniting. And we had a beautiful new building and I think they were all wondering how they were going to fill it. Well Marjorie Spicer, a very clever woman, wrote this wonderful play and all the beautiful music for Come to the River. And <clears throat> we barely opened the doors of the new church and the charismatic renewal was hitting all over Melbourne. But it hit Blackburn in a huge way. We really were an epicentre. And the church was absolutely packed to the scuppers every night and they were doing this come to the river and the Holy Spirit moved in. We were Presbyterian. <laughs> we had no theology. We were Calvinist. There was nothing to prepare us for what took place. The ministers were falling down under the anointing People were out in the streets, there were microphones out in the streets. We had every church in Blackburn. Now, I don't, you know the Crossway Church down in, that came out of that. That was the South Blackburn Baptist. They were full on. We had the um, St Thomas's, there was the Anglicans, there was the Church of Christ. There was, right the way through this region, it was just amazing. We were all meeting. There were miracles upon miracles. We saw people healed, we saw people set free, and we had no theology. But we were excited. We, we got very excited. And we went in, I remember going into, Vernon Cowan was in um, St Paul's Cathedral at that stage, and we went in in healing groups, healing teams, because St Luke's ministry was running. There were churches being opened, there were healing ministries being set up and the west of Melbourne was on fire. It was such an exciting time, it was just amazing. And we went into St Paul's Cathedral to pray for people and they were coming, literally walking along the street and they'd be drawn into the building and they'd sort of do a little circle and a spin and collapse in a heap. And the chancellery, now if you can imagine this, the chancellery in St Paul's Cathedral, people were being prayed for, set free and healed. All sorts of things were happening. And Vernon Cowan, I don't think he had a lot of theology for it either, but it was happening. And 
so in that, in that atmosphere, I was awakened. <clears throat> My eyes were opened spiritually in a dynamic way. And I saw for the first time fully what my family, the implications of what my family had been involved in. It was terrifying. I, um, I didn't quite know what to do about it. I did go and talk to my minister and he took me to some other ministers. And I went through a horrific time of coming to terms with the fact that I needed to confront my father. Now, I worked with my dad. He and I shared the front office in the business and I worked with this family. And the, ch the challenge to actually sit down face to face with my dad and talk to him about this stuff was pretty, pretty off-putting. And spiritually, it was really scary. But I eventually, with the support of these beautiful men, I had three beautiful ministers from senior ministers within the precinct of Melbourne who met with me in Ashburton in a churchyard and they all prayed with me and I'll never forget that day. And they encouraged me to be strong and to do what I needed to do. Well, I did pray for, I did confront my father. I took all, I studied the word and I had it all written down and I had books for him. And he at first was very resistant and very reluctant but I knew that he loved the Lord because he'd been water baptised and I couldn't address it with mum. She was a different, different thing altogether. But I sat down with my dad and we talked it out and finally he agreed that it would stop. And when he said no more, the family were absolutely furious with me because he made it clear that it was because of me. And the family were absolutely furious because this had been going on. There were cousins and various other people in the family that had been involved. And they didn't want to stop. They thought it was a real cool thing. And Dad stood his ground and it stopped. And I'll never forget coming home after a prayer meeting into the front room because I used to go there every day. One of my jobs was to care for my parents. And I came home or to their house, walked into the front room and where the seances had been held, there was a group of people from the Uniting Church and neighbours in the street had decided to listen to David Pawson. Now, I don't know if any of you have heard of David Pawson, but he's a lovely theologian and really straight down the line teaching. And they're all sitting there having a prayer group in my front lounge room or in my family's front lounge room, listening to David Pawson tapes. And I stood there and I said, Lord, this is an absolute miracle. Absolute miracle. It didn't just stop. They were getting proper teaching. For the first time, probably, the, the word of God was actually being um, exegeted correctly and they were getting some teaching and not all the silly nonsense that they'd believed in. Um, at this time, I, my marriage was um, broken down. I'd bought an old house. I was trying to shoulder the burden of the business. I'd been extremely sick. Um, it was the watershed of watersheds in my life. I fi finally actually broke down. I, I was just absolutely unable to concentrate. 
and I wasn't even able to work. And um, I remember sitting in the counting practice and I had a client in front of me and I couldn't even remember how to use my calculator. That's the state I was in. So recovery from that was quite difficult. That was in 1976. And, but I gradually worked my way back into some semblance of health. And then this lovely man, Graham Bateman, came into my life. He had, his wife had left him with two kids and I had a 60-year-old lady living with me who was an absolute scream and I adored her. And um, we all got on really well together. I had a daughter, he had two daughters, we had Auntie Dot. And we had some fun times in this old rambling old house. Um, eventually the kids decided that it would be a really good idea if we got married, so we did. So in 1978 we did the blended family thing. Well I'm so glad I've been through a blended family because it is a bit like a mix master. There's blood and guts everywhere and it's quite difficult. We not only had the kids, we had, um, two, we had to blend the cat and the dogs, the two cats and two dogs and a rabbit. And we all moved into one house in Vermont South and it was challenging to say the least. But they were good years and I learned to laugh again. I can remember I'd forgotten how to laugh. I'd really, really forgotten what it was to, to see humour in anything. It had all just been too heavy. And with a house full of youngsters and, and I'd only ever been able to have one child and I used to say to the Lord, that's not fair. I love kids and I want a family. Well, boy, did I get a, my comeuppance. Um, I got kids and grandkids and now great-grandkids and they, I, I'm really proud of it. I, yeah. I'm really, really proud of what we did. It was good. Um, so then in 1983, I'd always had an interest in theatre, I loved theatre. And I, I'd done some work putting some kids choir, I was involved with, my daughter was involved with a kids choir, and instead of standing all on roster, I said, oh, let's write a play and put music to it and get the kids up and acting. So we did. And guess who got to do the backdrop and the costumes and write it all and direct it all and everything else? So it was me. And uh, your idea, you fix it. So I loved it. It was exhausting, but it was, it was great. They did the music, I did the rest. And out of that, one day, I just, you know, the serendipity of life is just beautiful. I'm reading the Age newspaper one morning and there's a snippet about the National Theatre School and there was an intake of students. And it was night school, it wasn't, it was National Theatre School, which is pretty high in the agenda, but it was at night. And I thought, oh, look, the kids are big enough and I could, I could nick in after work. So I put my application in. Now, 600, this is no credit to me, this is God. 600 or so applicants and they only take 40 in the intake and I happened to be one of them, which was ripper. Um, I loved theatre school. I hit the ground running. I just absolutely loved it. I was working all day, running a house, doing a million things, but I'd get in my, my car with my poodle dog on my shoulder, uh, practising Shakespeare, and we'd drive into the National Theatre School and it was terrific. But what I need to share with you is this was a watershed too, because this was the coming out. This was the awakening. This was finding out who I really was, which I'd never really known. 
And so when I, I always remember this camp. There was a camp in the, in your training. You had to do a camp down at Summers in the middle of winter where you had to stay in character for two solid days. You developed the character on the, the, day, the day you got down there. And then you had to go into that character and stay in that character. And then they watched you to see where you fitted into the scheme of things. Well, my character was Gwen. And Gwen was a matron, and I never did do things by halves. So I'm walking around the camp in summers and I'm developing this character and I'm in charge of the whole camp. There are people up trees and down in bushes and all sorts of strange characters were being formulated. <laughs> but I'm Gwen. And so I won the, the prize job of running the joint while they were in character for the next two days. And I had a team that had come out of the in character that could be, they were considered to be nurses because it was going to be a health farm. This was a health farm and I was running it. And I was the only person in the camp who was allowed to talk to the leaders. There was only one person, nobody else. And if I saw something going wrong, I could come out of character to actually talk to them. Well, on the final morning, there was, it, it, it's indescribable what happens when you do this. But on the final morning, we'd had a very sleepless night. The nurses that were with me in my cabin were falling apart at the seams. And then this fellow who was a sergeant major, I don't know quite what his role was, but he kept on marching around the place. And he decided, <laughs> he decided that we were all going to have a roll call and honour the dead and the fallen at the flagpole at six o'clock in a freezing cold winter morning down at Summers. So the whole, everybody's called up to all stand around the flagpole on a freezing cold morning. It was sleep deprived, in character, insane. And he's hauling a tea towel up the flagpole. It did me in. I'm standing there and I'm thinking, this is just beyond anything I could ever have comprehended. It was just so funny. And the, one of the characters was a lovely woman, a lovely young woman, and she was the, she'd seen herself as the spiritual person, spiritual advisor or chaplain or whatever of the camp. So she was with him as we prayed the prayer for the fallen dead. And then she had a beautiful voice and she started to sing Amazing Grace in this cold, grey morning. And I looked up into the heavens and you know how you get that shaft of light and the sun just breaking through. And I'm looking up into the heavens and I'm singing Amazing Grace and suddenly something whirled up in me and I just said, hang it, blow the character. I'm just singing to you, Lord. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. And there was such a warmth, it was like this warmth inside of me just burst up in it like a well broke up inside me and I'm singing my heart out in this cold morning. And I was not the same again, ever. I came out of that camp, I'd, for years I'd tried to give up smoking, I was an anxiety freak. And I'd try to give up smoking and I'd get a difficult client and I'd get a, another cigarette and that was the way I sort of kept my anxiety level down. I came out of that camp and never smoked a cigarette. It was just instantaneous. It was just like, 
before. It was, it was gone. So that was my left brain breaking forth into my right brain and you can imagine what that did to an accountant. <laughs> Just think about it for a minute. An accountant with a left brain and a right brain actually functioning together. I was not going to last in the accounting practice, I knew it. I knew that something greater was coming. So then in 1985, um, I was still teaching Sunday school at the Uniting Church and this was really revelatory. And I had the 13 to 15 year olds, you know that bunch that nobody really wants to have much to do with. And we were over the road from the Avenue Church, we were in the manse, the old manse house, and they didn't want to come across the road. So on this particular morning, what the church elders were trying to do was to get the young people into the church. So they said, Robert, bring the kids across and when we do a baptism or a christening, I want you to bring the young people and they will stand around when we're baptising the baby and presenting it to the church, this is what they used to do. And it seemed like a lovely idea and I was all for that, so I brought my crew across. And while I was standing there at the font, I hope this doesn't offend anybody, but this is what happened. <clears throat> while I'm standing there at the font, the Lord speaks to me and he says, Robin, I want you to consider full water immersion baptism. I'd never even heard of full water immersion baptism. Not even in the charismatic renewal. Never came into the conversation. And, and I'm sort of standing there a bit stunned. And I said, well, Lord, I'm willing to look at it. I don't know what much about it, but open it up for me. I went home that, that was the Sunday, and somebody had put a pamphlet in my letterbox for the Apostolic Church, which was just opened up in Wonturna, the big dome. Some of you may remember that. It had just been built. And they were having a healing service and I was all into the healing stuff because I'd seen a lot of it. And um, so I went up to that service and I walked in the door of the Apostolic Church and I started to cry. I don't, I don't have any recollection of not crying. I think the moment I hit the doorstep I started to cry. And this beautiful woman wearing Ugg boots and with a big box of tissues, thank goodness, actually sat next to me and all I can remember is sitting next to her looking at her soft fluffy Ugg boots and sobbing, sobbing into her tissues and she patting me gently and saying, and I'm saying, I don't know what's the matter with me, and she's saying, it's all right, it's okay, you're going to be okay, it's okay. And they had an altar call. Now I'd never had been in an altar call, never heard of an altar call, we did we did um, confirmation, you were christened, you were confirmed. Never did an altar call in my church. Anyway, so they did an altar call. Do you want to give your life to Jesus? Oh yes, I want to give my life to Jesus. I love Jesus. So I staggered down to the front of the church all dripping wet and they actually started to talk to me about, would you believe full water immersion baptism? Have you been baptised? Well, I was christened and I've done confirmation. No, we're talking about full water immersion baptism. And I said, well, I know nothing about it. Can you tell me about it? So they gave me the, the booklets and things on it and then I went away and did my own research, told my family they were horrified. Um, <laughs> but I just had this feeling that this was really what I needed to do. 
So I went back to the minister at the church and I said, look, I really want to be baptised, but I'm part of the Uniting Church in Blackburn. And I told the minister down there and he just sort of looked at me quizzically and sort of, well, you'll get over it. But I never did get over it. That was the trouble. I never did get over it. So I went and I went through full water immersion baptism and when you do that, it shifts something else in the heavenlies. This is all part of coming out of the darkness. It really made a big difference when I went through the water. Um, so that was in 1985. Now by 1986, I was chewing sawdust in the family business. I just didn't want to be there, but my father had retired my brother had taken it over and I just wanted out. And I'm saying to the Lord, please, Lord, I can't walk away from my family. Please get me out. Well, finally, my brother sold me and the business because when he sold the business, he sold me with the business because I knew all the clients and I knew how to use all the equipment. So I was still stuck there. And I said to the Lord, Lord, I, I can't just walk out on all these people. 25 years is a long time to be with bunch of clients, you'll just have to do something miraculous and when the right person comes, you'll, you'll let me free. Well, he did eventually, after about 12 months of begging him, I actually scored a job at the Nunawading Arts Centre as the co-manager when it opened, you know, the Arts Centre down in Nunawading. I loved it. It was theatre, it was all the art groups, it was, oh, I was doing the accounting but I was also running the theatre. And I was in my element up to here. I just, oh, freedom, freedom, freedom. Well, then my mother got sick and my brother's business started to go broke and they both wanted me to do the right thing. So I absolutely spent one weekend, I can remember thumping my fists into the floor going, Lord, you can't send me back to the family, you can't send me back to the family, you can't send me back to the family. And he said, yes, I can. <laughs> so I did. And I spent 12 months fishing my brother out of a hole because a hole, he financially got into a hole. And the business was all turning around and I hated every mortal minute of it. And every morning I'd get up and I'd say, God, give me grace to get through today. But we got there and 12 months into it, I went out to say my normal little spiel into the car in, as I was getting into the car, God, give me grace to get through today. And I wound up flat on my face on the... Wind, on the um, steering wheel and the Lord said it's over it's done go and tell your brother he doesn't need you anymore so I walked into his office in the morning and I said what would you say if I said that you didn't need me anymore and he said we sort of looked around by this time we were in new premises we had good staff the business was doing well he said oh, I guess it's okay suicide I suppose I don't need you anymore and unbeknownst to him, sitting on my desk, I'd spent 11 years praying on a fairly regular basis at the psych hospitals, Dr John O, some of you may have heard of him, a lovely psychiatrist out there. We used to have a prayer group and we'd meet on Friday. So I had good connections within the psych system. And there was on my desk an invite to go and train in the chaplaincy there. And there were only, once again, four places far too many applicants and I thought oh, I'll give it a throw. So I said to my husband who was not keen for me to give up work, he thought it was a damn stupid idea, I said look if I actually got this 
would you let me um, have time off to go and train in the hospital? And very begrudgingly, and then I knew it was God, because when, 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 whenever it was difficult, God would intervene, and, and Graham would always say yes. But it wasn't in his best interest. So he, it happened. I actually got a place as a trainee in the psychiatric hospitals. I'd lived on the smell of an oily rag. Um, my father was just, they, they supplied, I, I did stuff for them, they supplied the money for my fees and for my petrol to get out there. And so I went into the psychiatric training and that was another really massively, massive learning curve. The learning curve there was when I went in, I thought I was there to help people. I thought, you know, I'm here and you know, you should be blessed because I'm here. Well, I was fairly quickly um, became aware that that probably wasn't a very good attitude. And I hated my trainer, Drew Laleen. I had the best trainer in the world, but for six months I, in my journal, I'd write all these things about, why is there no structure? I have no idea what I'm doing. I thought you were here to teach me. And he would say, every time I went in for supervision, he'd say, now what's it like for you? What's happening for you? What's it all about for you? And I'd get so frustrated with him. Why will you not tell me what to do? Well, the wake-up call came. I decided to have a cabaret in Mont Park. They'd never had a cabaret in the lock wards of Mont Park. But I decided I'd take the church musos. My daughter was a beautiful um, saxophonist and there was a lot of musos that I commandeered to take into the lock wards of Mont Park. And we decided we'd have this cabaret. And it was, I had to make posters, it was funny. I had to make posters to go on the walls around the other hospitals because there was plenty. There was Janefield, there was Greswell, there was um, Mont Park. All of them were in that big complex out at McLeod. And whenever you did anything and you wanted people to come, you had to make some posters to go around on their notice boards. So I, in the break between being on the wards and being in class, I set myself up to do these posters and I was in the recreational area and I had my paint and paper and I was ready to rock. Well, anyway, little Annie came up and she decided she wanted to help me and I thought, oh, that's okay, you can come and help me. And she liked the paint. Well, that was really good and there was red paint and there was green paint and there was blue paint and there was yellow paint and there was paint, lots of paint. So I filled it all in and I said, now just paint in the lines. Well, that was silly, wasn't it? Because there was no way she was going to do that. She was going to do her own thing. And it wasn't long before a few more joined her, all thinking that it sounded like a really good fun exercise. And so then the kitchen staff came in and they decided they wanted to paint stars on everything. And by the time I'd finished, I was covered in paint and paper everywhere. I only had a very limited amount of time to do this task. And it was complete, absolute chaos and bedlam. Fortunately, the bell rang and they all went for lunch. And I'm left with this mess. Now, I'm a fairly pernickety sort of a person. And you're supposed to do things proper. Well, it was far from proper. So I scrambled around and I managed to get enough posters to um, put in the wards, sort of, 
but they were the most, they were weird. When I got, when I got back to the, to the chaplaincy and I got in, came in, Drew Lalene, this beautiful man, he took one look at me and he said, <laughs> said you, look a, you look a little bit flustered. <laughs> What's been happening? And so I sat down to tell him and he's got a little pot tummy and he's got his hands on his tummy and he's waiting for me to tell a story and I started to tell the story. And once again, I started to laugh. You know that hilarity where you just can't contain it? Suddenly, it was just so, so funny. And I could see his hands starting to move up and down. He was laughing too. And the pair of us actually wound up with our hands in, head in hands on the, on the desk, absolutely in fits of laughter. I mean, this was a psychiatric hospital. It was, in loud, it was allowed to be insane. <laughs> And um, I wanted to just, I don't want to bore you with this, but just a minute, I, I didn't check the time. But I did want to tell you some stories about the psych hospitals. Um, that was an amazing experience, because after that, once again, some more fell off me. It was like I was breaking, things were breaking off me that had been there right from the time that I came into this world. And this was another one of those breaking things that just broke me open. And then when I started to walk in the wards, I, I was walking from a totally different perspective. I started to see what God was doing to me, which is what Drew was trying to tell me. It's not about what you're doing, it's about what God's doing in you and what you can bring through the Lord to these people. And once I got that, everything changed. And there were miracles upon miracles that happened and I wanted to tell you two or three little stories just to give you an idea of the power of it. There was one lass, I used to love to spend time in the arts area at Rundle. And it was an area as long as this, there were three classrooms that had been joined together. Now I'm right down this end and this lass is right up the other end. And all I've got in my lapel is a little cross to the chaplaincy. And she comes from the far side to where I am and she takes a hold of the cross. No words were spoken, beautiful looking girl. And she took me and she led me by the collar into the kitchen. And it was one of those awful old kitchens with lino on the floor and very grubby. But she indicated to me that she wanted me to sit down on the floor. So I just sat down on the floor, no words were spoken. And she started to dance. And she danced the most horrific abuse, absolutely horrendous abuse. And I'm watching this saga unfold in front of me. She had no words, there were no words that describe what she was showing me. And I just sat there in stunned silence. And when she'd finished and when she was spent, she came and she curled up in my lap like a little damaged kitten. And we sat there in silence, so just stroked her head. And we just sat there for quite a long time. And when she was ready, she got up and she walked away. I didn't know which ward she was from because it's a big area, a big lot of wards. Some, probably quite a long time afterwards, there was a letter sent to the chaplaincy from her. She'd left the hospital and she was working with animals. 
um, re, you know, rehousing animals. And she was doing really well and she wanted to thank me. Just amazing. There was Maria up in the wards in La Rundle, and Maria was a little Italian woman and she would freak out. And this, when I got into the chaplaincy in the morning, this morning, they called me really early in the morning, when, as soon as I got in. I wasn't in a good way. I, it was a winter's morning and I wasn't all, I was a bit grumpy. And they said, come up to the Lurundal and we want you to spend time with Maria. So when I got up there, she'd been in, they had an isolatory ward for one person on the ward. And she'd been there all night. She was incontinent. She'd been screaming all night. And the staff were exhausted. She was exhausted. It was just a horrible, horrible situation. Anyway, I walked into it and I shut the door behind me and I scooped her up in my arms. Didn't know what else to do. Had no idea what to do. Just scooped her up in my arms. And I started to sing in tongues. Just, just rocking her and singing in tongues. And I could feel her body just go limp in my arms and all the madness just drained away and she started to stroke my face and say Christos, Christos. She knew what I was singing about, Christos. There's a heap more stories I could tell you. It was an amazing experience, um, something that I love dearly and I treasure highly. But it's time, we better just um, race through to the end. Um, I came out of the hospital to, I was working, uh, I was studying, I, I, I realised I needed a lot more training. I'd already studied theology, I'd already had a, done systematic theology at quite a high level, <clears throat> but I needed more. So I went, when I came out of the hospital, so I went to, I'm just trying to think how it worked, I was working with, um, there was a house that Youth for Christ had, which was adolescents the first time out of home. And they wanted me to liaise between the parents and the, and the girls. Anyway, I wound up with a handful of pregnant girls. I had no idea what to do with pregnant teenagers. I'd had no experience of pregnant teenagers. But I learned from them and I learned from Patsy Littlejohn who was doing a thesis. That work went, just grew. I had a big team around me of women that came in to support. I worked with the girls, they worked with the babies and we had quite a, a network going and some of those babies and girls were taken into their homes to teach them parenting skills. And I have to say every one of them came to the Lord in that first batch and the um, the babies all thrived. Now those babies would not have thrived if they hadn't had that support from those lovely people. I went on to work for Knox Council. They seconded me with the, they had a huge number of teenagers within the community, I think it was 50, that they couldn't get to access because they were teenagers. They weren't going to child and maternal welfare. They weren't getting the antenatal and postnatal support that they needed. And they wanted somebody to work with them. It, it just went, it just went bananas the whole thing. And I was also working with the families of um, the children of the families with mental illness. We were trying to reconcile, I, I set up a program to work with the 
adults and the children and just to work out common ground between them because it's very confusing for a child when they're getting mixed messages and they're living with somebody who has a mental illness. So there was all of that going on in the background. Um, I'm nearly there. I went on to study pretty um, intensely because I was incredibly interested in about what I was doing and the work um, as a chaplain, I needed to be ordained. I was right in the thick of the battle over whether women could be ordained or not. And um, finally the Dean of my college just took me under his wing and said, I'll sort it, and he did. And so I had full credentials and I was still, still, chaplain, still being a chaplain in the hospital, being a chaplain to Knox Council, chaplain in a number of areas. But then I had the credential to go with it. But as life turned some corners, I was stricken. I had rheumatoid arthritis for a long time, but I woke up one morning, my mother had just died. She died um, in the October. November the 16th, I woke up and I was completely paralyzed from head to foot, couldn't get out of bed. The pain is indescribable and it went on for months and months and months and months and there was nothing they could do about it. And I remember in this, I'll just quickly bring this one up because it was so pivotal to the transformation. In that waking and sleeping where you're not really, you're sort of in an altered state of consciousness and I'd been like that for months and I couldn't escape it. It was just, it was there 24 seven. And I'm crying out to the Lord and I'm saying, Lord, I'm hanging on to you, I'm hanging on to you. There's nothing else to hang on to. I don't understand. Everything was looking really good and it all just went to mush. The whole, everything that I'd been working for, it all just, I couldn't be there, I was too sick. And it didn't make any sense. And I kept on sort of saying, well, have I done something? Have I not confessed something? What, what's, what's going on? I woke up, I became aware this particular morning, I didn't want to hang on any longer. And I said to him, Lord, I can't hang on any longer. You just have to beam me up, Scotty. I've had enough. And I visibly saw his hands come and take my hands and put his hands over my hands. And he said, Robin, you're not hanging on to me. I'm hanging on to you. Wow. What a lesson. And theologically, I knew that was true. As soon as he said it, I said, what is it in human nature that we think that we can do it ourselves? It's so deeply entrenched. It's so powerful. So I'd like to say that I actually jumped out of bed and it was all very well afterwards. No, it was a long journey to get back on my feet. But it was also a breaking away from me being a doer, me seeing myself as being um, in some way um, special. I learned the hard way that it's God and only God. I went on, the only thing I could do was do more study, which I loved anyway. So I, while I was rehabilitating, I was studying. Now, the, um, when I came out of that, I did do some pastoral work in the church for quite a number of years. And then we, I'm winding it up now, we um, 
came up to Lilydale in 2001, built a house up here where I could have my private practice. By that stage I had a private practice which was flourishing. And um, I could see people in private and I had 13 years, no it wasn't really 13 years, yes it was 13 years, 13 years where I worked from home but in this lovely environment of Lilydale up just in Hind Street just below Mangans Road. We had a bit of acreage and it worked really well. And so that brings me to the now. We, when I retired, we moved down to Moorbark and we've been there, this is our seventh year, but I lost my buddy last year. So it's been quite a journey. But what I wanted to highlight in all of this, and I've probably taken way too much time, is that when those doors are open, it's no easy ride to come out, but God is faithful every step of the way. Absolutely amazing. And when I look around now and I see the, um, the decimation of families and lives and, you know, all the things that happen, I, I grieve. I want to see revival. Boy, do I want to see revival. It's like, just do it, Lord, just do it. So I've got a passion for Lilydale. I've got a really deep passion for the Yarra Rangers. I really do, do believe God's going to rock up in here. And um, so I'm going to leave it there and hope I haven't bored you all to tears. But that's, the, um, that's a little bit of insight into the journey. Listening to that, Robin, there was such a sense of how you finished with, you know, God has done this and been faithful every step of the way and every door that's been opened that was challenging, but there was a, a, a new level of his nature to learn and who he was and a real matriarchal spirit on Robin, I believe, um, to release into into a, um, into this. And, and I want to... This is what we're here, Glory City, Melbourne, is not here to tick some church box and go, hey, look at us, we're playing church. We're here as a family on a mission to reach our region for Jesus. Mm, That's it. Yeah. There's no other, it's like, 
you might come and be like, oh, well, this church doesn't do this or whatever. It's like, we, we, whatever, we're here for that reason alone. Yes, we're here to do community. We're here to know each other and do fellowship. But we, we are here to be a church that's out there and come here, get equipped, get filled up and be sent to actually reach this region. Mm. Otherwise, what are we doing, really? Yeah. A good friend of ours, you know, one day he said to us, we're all sitting around in a group, a bunch of, you know, Jaleel was there and um, Mark Greenwood was there and this friend of ours, David Ridley, actually they've got his David and Ruth and so I always think of his because they're David and Ruth as well. But, um, and Dave goes, there's a map of Australia and he goes, well boys, are we going to take this or what? <laughs> he says, what else are we doing with our lives? <laughs> And it's like, that's what we're here for. Yeah. We're here for that. We're here for a move of God to, to take place. And I want to encourage Glory City, everyone in this church, I personally want to be able to run the race like Robin has run the race. I want to get to Robin's age and go, you were so faithful, God. Mm. You were faithful. I can look back over, your, over my life and just see the markers and the history with God. And Bill Johnson coined a phrase, he said, if you create history with God, he'll create history through you. Yeah. Mm. And if you create history with God in your private place, he will create a history through you. Mm. So thank you, Robin. Can you pray for us and um, release whatever you want and then we'll go home. Okay. <laughs> okay. Lord, I'm just conscious of all those that have gone before. And the prayers, I'm thinking of the prayers of the saints, all the faithful people who've struggled to keep the faith and to stand tall and to stand strong. And Father, I pray that as we come together and as we grow deeper and deeper and more in love with you every day, Lord, bless us and keep us and strengthen us, inspire us, lift us up, show us the way, let us put our trust in you, Lord. Hold us to, so so firmly in the in your hand we are in the palm of your hand and lord so easy it's so easy to think that we're doing it and it's not it's you all the way all the way with jesus lord i love you i adore you and i know that you're in this place and i know you're in this valley i know that you've got watching over this with such such love you're hovering you're hovering and father i pray that we will be wise, we will be mature, we will be ready and equipped with our lamps filled and ready to hear the, the trumpet call when the time comes. I pray for a blessing on the leadership, on everybody that comes here, I particularly pray for the kids. I just think the children are just such a joy, have such a beautiful bunch of kids around the place. And I just thank you, Lord. I thank you for the privilege of being here. I thank you for the privilege of being able to share. Oh, Lord, you're just beautiful. You are just beautiful. And I thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Lord. And I think of the words of my grandfather. He used to say, I brought my family to Australia because this is the great south land of the Holy Spirit. And I really do believe that and I thank I thank my grandpa for bringing, me, bringing us here and I thank all my family for their part in my story. Amen. 
Amen. Awesome. Yeah, one more time. Thank you.